welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 26 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the evening service of Sunday the 22nd of November 2009, entitled The Fundamentals, His Visible Return, Part 11, and the Bible reading is taken from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. I'd like to be opening your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 21 this evening. I'm going to attempt, by the help of God, to finish off a series on the Lord Jesus Christ and his visible return this evening. And uh, while you're turning there, I'll just uh, point out on your charts, if you have have got them with you there, Uh, first of all, on the... uh, uh, on the timeline itself, that uh, we've come across the timeline from the present age, and if you're looking at it there now, the only thing that uh, from where we left this morning uh, to where we are right now is literally the only thing that's left on there is that section that's left right there in that little yellow circle. Uh, we finished off this morning with the eternal doom of death, hell, and unbelievers into the lake of fire. And of course, you'll see there in your little yellow circle, new heaven, new earth, eternity with Christ. And that's where we are on there. And if you're looking on your uh, Revelation study chart, and again, I know that we've not gone through this in detail as we did before. Whoa, yes, I'm here. Uh, When we did our study on the... uh, uh, book of Revelation, but uh, but you will find that uh, if you're looking there, and I'll see if I can make this just a uh, a bit bigger for you up here. But uh, but we have uh, we have covered everything uh, down through uh, number six. If you're coming down the side, you've got seven numbers coming down, and you've got seven different things going across with a few things filling in the gaps. We finished off this morning with the last one there on the dooms of the unbelievers being cast into the lake of fire. And what we want to look at this evening is that bottom row of new things. Uh, We said this morning as we uh, were looking at these passages, of course, that we were talking about the result of His coming on eternity. And of course, we looked this morning at the eternal dooms, and in the end, all those uh, from, uh, of course, starting with the uh, if you've got your, your, your chart there, starting with the fall of Babylon, the Antichrist, uh, the false prophet, uh, the kings of this earth that have tried to raise their armies against our Lord. This morning we saw again after the millennium reign when uh, Satan uh, comes back and uh, once again uh, is able to deceive the nations and they rise up uh, against God's people and against God's city, the battle of Gog and Magog. They are destroyed with fire from heaven itself. And of course, the doom of Satan is he's cast into the lake of fire and all unbelievers of all time meet their doom with that eternity in hell. But the results of Christ's coming is not only going to be the doom for those that do not know him as their Lord and Savior, uh, but we said that we just wanted to uh, draw our attention tonight rather than the eternal doom to the eternal delight. I'd like to begin by reading in Revelation chapter 21, and to start with, I'm just going to read the first seven verses, 
And I invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's holy word, beginning in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. He shall be my son. Father, we thank you again for the time that you've given us together this evening. Lord, we pray over these next moments that we have together that as we look into this passage of Scripture, Lord, that you will just take and speak to hearts, encourage hearts, challenge hearts, meet the needs of each heart here this evening. May you receive all the glory and honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. How many of you like getting new things? You know, I guess that uh, it probably tells a little bit about our flesh, our uh, selfish flesh, I guess maybe I should say. Because, you know, we can think back, and even back as you think back into uh, uh, to childhood, uh, some of the memories that really stand out are some of those things when it was new things. I mean, I, I can, you know, remember getting new toys and being absolutely so excited. It didn't have to be an expensive toy like a lot of the computer things today. It could be just a little cap pistol or something, you know. Uh, but just the excitement of getting a new toy, you know, and, and being able to, uh, to play with it. And I can still remember some of those toys that I got because I was so excited when, uh, when I got them. I can, remember, I can remember the very first time as a young man, after going to work and earning my own money, and rather than mom and dad having to buy my clothes for me, I remember the very first time that I went out and actually bought my own clothes, picked them out, and paid for them with my own money. And I was excited. These were, were new clothes. And of course, you know, sometimes, I mean, you know, it just makes you feel better when you, when you get those new things. And, and of course, even, even little things, sometimes old things can be new things. Uh, I remember we weren't exactly rich growing up. And I remember even sometimes when my dad got a, a new old car. Uh, it was a used car. Boy, we're getting some, uh, somebody playing into our uh, system here somehow. But, uh, you know, even though that it may be a car that was a few years old that somebody else had had from brand new, it was new to us, and there was something exciting about, as a little kid, to, to get in there and to, to go for a ride in that, in that new car. And, you know, the truth is, even as adults, new things still, they delight us a lot of times. We just enjoy. And even sometimes it's new toys. We're going to have uh, to do something here. If we got any... Uh, 
mobile phones anywhere, we're getting some bad interruptions. Uh, even if they're on silent, they'll still interrupt if you've got them on. So uh, you can help us out, those, uh, those folks listening to this, my uh, uh, iPod won't uh, appreciate all that static in their ears either. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, new things delight us a lot of times. And of course, even as we get older, we still enjoy getting new toys sometimes. Just about anything that has anything to do with a train will bring a smile to Peter's face. Um, and, and, you know, the thing is, is that's, that's okay. It's okay to delight in things. And that's what I think the Lord, as he shows us these things here, is a result of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw this morning that there's an awful lot of people that are going to have to give an awful lot of answers, and there's not going to be any answers that they can give. And as an ultimate end to that, they're going to meet their doom for all of eternity. They will be eternally separated from God. They will be eternally dead in that sense. But they will be eternally conscious of just what it is that they're missing in life. But of course, as we see also, is that as a result of the second coming of our Lord, for those that know Him as their Lord and Savior, for those that, that truly have put their faith and trust in Him, it won't be a time of doom. It'll be a time of great delight. We just read of just a, a few of the things here that we, that we see in Scripture. And, of course, if you've got your chart, we'll look across that in just a, just a few moments. But we find that as a result of Christ's second coming, His completing that work that He has begun in each and every saint. You know, that's what He's promised. We even sing that song sometimes that, you know, that which he hath begun, he will complete, he will finish, he will see it through and to the end. And of course, we've seen how that he's already now dealt with Satan, he's dealt with sin, he's dealt with the sinners, all of it once and for all, and all of those eternal consequences are dealt with and they're done away with, and he's now going to accomplish some things that were never possible. They were never possible as long as Satan and sin and sinners were on the scene. But now they've been taken off the scene. And he's going to delight his children with some new things we see here. And, of course, these are not just temporal things, but these are eternal things that God does. Notice, first of all, he says there in verse uh, 1 of chapter 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now we touched on that this morning. We saw how that literally all that God created in this universe suddenly is becoming uncreated. God put it there, and God keeps it there. But there's coming a time in the end when God is going to take it away. And the Bible is telling us here again the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. But God's making a new heaven and a new earth. Now, sometimes it gets hard for us because right now, all we know is this earth that we live upon. And we don't know anything else. We read about heaven. But, you know, the, the Bible itself tells us that we don't even begin to think and comprehend and understand what heaven is really going to be like. Because we don't have anything to compare it to. Everything that we know in life has been tainted and touched by sin. 
everything around us, everything we've ever seen, everything we've ever touched, everything we've ever had anything to do with has the curse of sin upon it. We don't know anything like heaven where sin does not exist. And of course, I think the amazing thing is we read through these passages, if you will allow me and take this in the way that I mean it, it doesn't really matter where physically that heaven is because in reality, heaven is anywhere that we are with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it'll be perfect and it'll be without sin. And yes, we get some descriptions of it and those are things that just to whet our appetite, if you would, of what we've got to look forward to. But we see in God's economy that everything that sin cursed, just as Satan and sin and the sinners and all of that has been dealt with, even this sin-cursed world will be dealt with. It will be done away with, but there's going to be a new heaven, and there's going to be a new earth. We find that as we continue to read, we see that the third one you see there is there's going to be a new Jerusalem. Notice what he says, first of all, in verse 2, And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice if you look down now into verse 9, we get a pretty good description of this new Jerusalem as he describes it to us. Notice that he, beginning in verse 9, he says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. It had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. He that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, and 140 and four cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. The building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, likened to clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, and the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, and the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, 
and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. What does that sound like? It sounds like something that's so dazzling that, again, we've never seen it. We've, we've seen maybe a diamond or a sapphire or you know, a, a few of these stones, but we're talking about a, a city that even the gates are made of pearls. And of course, this is where a lot of times that we get confused because, folks, the New Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem is a place where we, the bride of Christ, will be living with him. The New Jerusalem, the holy city, when it descends down out of heaven, we will be there with him. We will be the ones. We talk about having our abode in heaven. That's exactly, but of course, we try to put heaven out there somewhere, but here is coming down to earth. There's no more sin on earth. This is not the old earth. It's not coming down to this sin-cursed earth. There's a new earth. There's new heavens out there. And the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven to be right here for us. We find that, if you notice in verses 3 through 8, that there's also here a new people, a new people. He says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. He shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving, the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, we find here that there's a new people. Why? Because, folks, we've never known life like we're going to know it then. Because the Bible teaches us that He's going to take away everything that we know that's ever tarnished this life. It's going to be gone. No sickness, no pain. None of those things will have a part of our life. He's going to wipe away the tears. There'll be no more tears. I'm not so sure. I guess the question has often been asked, you know, as we look this morning and we're there at the, the great white throne of judgment, and it's clear that we're going to be present with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not separated from Him. He's the one that's sitting on the throne. And as all those unbelievers are there before the throne, that means our family. That means the people we love. That means our closest friends. That means anybody that we know that's never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they're going to be there before that great white throne. And there's only one destiny for all those that will be standing before that throne. And he just told us here again in this verse because... This new people, this new people is made up of those that know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that He is the Redeemer. But the unbelievers, 
the sinners, the whoremongers, the liars. He says there's no place for them except that in that eternal abode of hell. You know, I really, again, I wouldn't pin some theological doctrine on it, but I don't think it's coincidence in our scriptures that it's here following the great white throne judgment that all the tears are wiped away. Because I can't imagine. You see, I don't for one moment, I don't believe our Lord Jesus Christ that was willing to suffer everything that he suffered, that was willing to die upon that cross, that was willing to become sin for you and I. I don't for a moment think as he sits upon that throne in judgment that he's going to do it with joy in his heart. The Bible teaches us that one of the things that we see in Jesus Christ when he was here upon this earth is his compassion. The Bible teaches us that it's not his will that any should perish. I don't think that there'll be any joy in passing judgment. And yet at the same time, I think that he will do what he has to do just like he did when he came and he allowed men to put him through what they did, when he allowed them to nail him to that cross, when he died that cross, because not because he had to, folks but because he loved you so much, because he was willing to do it, because that was what had to be done in order to give you hope, in order to give you a future, in order to give you life. And I believe the same thing as he sits upon that throne. He will judge sin because sin must be judged. He cannot allow sin to go on. And if sin goes past that point, then everything that we're reading about here disappears. These new things cannot be as long as sin is present. It will be dealt with because that's the only way that there can ever be a heaven, that there can ever be this new people that can know a life without sin, without pain, without all of the consequences of sin. No, we can't imagine it. And it's really a bit pointless for me to stand here and try to describe to you what heaven is like. Because with all the beauty that the Bible tells us about, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. How can I tell you what it's going to be like to be a people when literally there is nothing sin-cursed about your existence anymore, when there is no pain, there is no sickness, there is no death, there is no dying, there is no sorrow whatsoever? How can we even imagine life as such? And yet without sin, only without sin, only without the great deceiver himself, Satan, only then can we experience and know that kind of life. It's not because that he's an unloving God that he would send men to an eternity in hell. There can never be a future for anybody unless sin is dealt with, unless it's dealt with in a final way and done away with completely. We find that there's a new people We find also then as he, we've read the next verses in verses 9 to 21 in describing the new Jerusalem. Notice also then down in verse 22, he says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. You see, right back through Scripture, We've always had a place to meet with God. Of course, we live in a day when many, the church has no place in their life. The coming together to meet with God has no place. True. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You don't have to go to church to be saved. But if you are saved, 
You should have a desire to be worshiping him. You know, I, I can't imagine my life. Some of you have been there. Peter shared with us tonight after just being sick and out of church for two weeks, and there's, there's something missing in your life when it's not there. You want to adore him. You want to praise him. You want to worship him. And when we come together as a body, we meet in this place because it's been set aside as a place where we, as a body of believers, of like mind and like faith, can come together and we can worship and adore Him and magnify Him. Yes, He's given us teachers and pastors and those to help us that we might grow in the things of the Lord. But why are we growing? Why are we to be stronger? Why do we need to be a strong church? Why do we need to be together in this? He says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And he goes on. He says, but exhorting one another, building each other up, and all the more as you see the day approaching. As it gets closer and closer to the end, we need to be stronger and we need each other and we need that encouragement. We need to lift each other because the light is getting dim around us, folks. People are going off to an eternity in hell. Everything that we saw there this morning, those dooms are going to be a reality for anyone. And if we don't get the gospel message to them, they have no hope. And if they reject that message once they get it, they have no hope. There's something interesting here, though. Even though we don't appreciate it, God's always had a place, and it should have an important place in every Christian's life. But suddenly... <laughs> In this new world with no sin, no Satan, no sinners, we find that there's no need for a building, Brother Malcolm, for God's people to meet in because we're there with God himself. We're there with God himself. We're meeting with him. We come here to shut the world out, to try to come together in our hearts and minds to meet with him. That's why we should be here. But we won't need that building anymore because we will be with him. He will be our temple. We find that the Bible says that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, they are the temple. They are the meeting place of God's people, if you would. And I want you to notice something else in verse 23 to 27. On your chart, I've simply called it a new light. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. <laughs> Folks, there's only one people going to be there. And that's an amazing thought. Again, you can look at all these scientific things. I mean, you know how important to our existence that the sun is, that it's the temperature that it is, that it's exactly where it is, and that we go around it at exactly the speed that we go around it? Do you realize how important it is to our existence that the moon is where it's at, 
It affects our tides and it brings them in. It not only gives us light by night, but it affects all these things around us. And yet, in this new world, there'll be no need for the sun, Brother Peter. <laughs> no need for the moon. There won't be any night anyway. Because all the brightness, all the power. You see, in essence, that's all the sun is. The big ball of energy. <laughs> but the truth is, is that God Almighty, the creator of all that is, He is all the energy of the universe. The sun is just a tiny, tiny fraction of what our God is. He is all of it. And so therefore, in His presence, there will be no need. There will be a new light. Notice what it says in chapter 22. We see a new paradise and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face. His name shall be in their foreheads. There shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his service the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Behold, I come quickly. The Bible says, oh, in the last days there's going to be those, those mockers. We can say, oh, yeah, you preachers been saved forever and ever and ever. He's coming quickly. He's coming quickly. He's coming this week. He's coming this year. He's coming now. And look, all these years pass by, and he's still not here. What they're, in fact, doing is making light the grace of our God. Because if he had already come, if you're not ready to meet him, there would be no more hope, no more opportunity whatsoever. Because we've seen through this study of His visible return and His visible return. Listen to me. I've said this, and I want you to mark it down, and I want you to remember it. I've said before in all this series of contending for the faith, the truth is, what do we fight for? What do we stand for? Why do we believe what we believe? What is important that we hold on to and that we don't let anybody take away from us? And I'm telling you, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. Now, I know, and I've said before, and I'm trying to be gracious in the fact that I know that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ don't believe to the timing, and they would want nothing to do with that time chart that you've got there, and many of them don't even believe these things to be literal. That's fine. That's between them and God. I'm encouraging you to take the Word of God and know what you know and know what you believe because God's Word teaches it. And I say to you, and I say it unashamedly, there is absolutely nothing in God's Word, no reason whatsoever that we should take these things in some spiritual sense rather than just like God has told us that they're going to happen. No reason at all. If we're going to take the rest of God's Word, we're going to take what He says for what He says, why do we suddenly 
Start saying, well, all this can't be. We're going to symbolize this, and we're going to type over this, and we're going to say something here that, well, that doesn't really mean that it's literally going to happen, and I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm just saying, as far as I'm concerned, that's a foolish way to handle the Word of God. And I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I look forward to seeing them in heaven one day. And I'm sure that when we all stand there, we're all going to find out that there were some things that we thought we were so sure about that just aren't exactly the way that we thought that they were. But I want you to know, there is no, there is no having the faith that we have and not believing in His visible return. And I want you to know that we've gone aside from that and we've taken weeks here to look at the fact that if you're going to be a part of this church, you need to understand that we believe in that pre-millennial, pre-tribulational rapture we believe in a pre-millennial return of Christ to this earth, a literal thousand-year kingdom being set up, and all these things that we've looked at, we believe they're just as real as anything in this world possibly can be, and they will happen just as God said that they would happen, and that's what we're going to teach, and that's what we're going to preach, and that's where we're going to stand. But know that you know it. You know, a lot of people in a church that don't take a stand, whether it's pre-millennial or amillennial or whatever it is, because they don't want to be offensive. I'm saying, how can you study God's Word? You can't read these things. You're either going to take them or what they say, or you're going to make something else out of them. Know why you believe it. Not just because your pastor has told it to you, but because I've tried to point you to God's Word and show you in God's Word exactly why I do preach and teach to you this way. You'll never stand for anything that you don't truly, truly, have the foundation of God's Word for. If some man has put it there, some other man can come along and change your mind. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. We don't need to be living our lives based on a faith that's just some hearsay information that's been passed to us from this one or that one or somebody else. It needs to be given to us straight from God Himself. And I'm just about finished but I want to give you just a final few passages that I'm going to read to you. First of all, we know that if these things are true, the final and last thing that I've given you in this series on His visible return, we started with defining the importance of His return. Why is it important that we believe it? We went secondly at describing the meaning of exactly what we mean by the second coming of Christ, His visible return. Third, we went and we spent some weeks on detailing the action of what we're talking about, how it's going to take place, and how it's going to have an effect on us and everybody else and all of eternity. Finally, fourthly, because it always comes up as part of the conversation, depicting the timing. When's it going to happen? When is He coming? Well, Revelation chapter 16 And verse 15, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus said, Jesus Christ himself, the one that's coming back, he said, behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now he's not coming back to steal something. That's not what he's talking about. He comes as a thief. 
Have you ever had a thief call you up? Anybody get these sales calls on the phone that you just love all the time? Usually right in the middle of your dinner and they call up and they're, they're wanting to sell you some new holiday or some uh, windows to go in your house or some insulation for the loft or something. They're wanting to sell you something. Have you ever had a thief call up and try to make an appointment to, to come and see you so he could steal something from you? When is he going to turn up? When he thinks you will least expect it. When you're not paying attention. What he's trying to say here is nobody knows when that thief, he's coming like a thief. He's going to catch you by surprise. And we need to be ready at all times. Now, I'm not going to take, but if you're taking notes, you can make notes there because we have already read this passage earlier as we looked at Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and the Olivet Discourse and, and what was said there and all of those signs that he's given us. Look at these things because their question was, how do we know when it's coming? And he goes through all kinds of things for us to watch for and look for. And I'll simply say this, and I'll repeat it one more time tonight. You can read everything in the Word of God. There has never been a prophecy made that hasn't been fulfilled exactly like God said that it would be. And all the prophecy concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't set you a date on the calendar. According to the Bible, even Jesus himself doesn't know that date. And he's God, only the Father. We find that one thing I can tell you with absolute certainty, we don't know the date, we don't know the time, but there's nothing left to be fulfilled that must be fulfilled before the trumpet sound and the rapture takes place. Oh, yes, there's more prophecy. We've looked at a lot of it, but everything else that must be fulfilled that God has said will happen can just as surely happen after the trumpet sounds during the seven years of tribulation and that time that follows, there is nothing to hinder his return tonight. You can read Matthew chapter 24 and 25 again as we have already looked there. You can also read in the Gospel of Mark and chapter 13. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. And of course, again, we find that he goes through and he, he is telling them exactly what to expect. This is just a, another rendering from the Mount of Olives of the Olivet Discourse that's there in the Gospel of Mark. You'll also find it in Luke chapter 21. Read them. Look at the signs of the times. Look at what he says is going to be. And you know, it's like, it's like we look sometimes if we're traveling down the road and we see a road sign and we're heading for somewhere. We're looking for those signs to tell us how far it is to our destination. He's given us some road signs to let us know, hey, you're here. This is what you're going to see. Have you ever given somebody directions to get somewhere? And you say, you're going to pass this, and you're going to pass that. You're going to take a ride at this place. And then you're going to go past this, and you give them all these descriptions so they know when they're getting to the end of their journey where they're supposed to be. These pages are filled with road signs to look at. And as we begin to look, and if we see this is what's going to be, and this is what's going to be, and this is what's going to be, and we see those things. You see, God is outside of time. <laughs> we think 2,000 years is a long time. 2,000 years is nothing. I mean nothing in light of eternity. You know, sometimes as we get older, we find that time just seems to get faster and faster and faster all the time. The years just go by so quick. We find that with God, though, 
Time is nothing. He's outside of time. Why? We have to have time in our lives. Why? Because we're not eternal in these bodies that we live in. Yes, we can have eternal life, but time is important to us because every one of us in our physical bodies, we only have so much of it. <laughs> we only have so much of it. But God's got all of it. <laughs> there is no limitation. Suddenly, it doesn't matter. He's outside of it. And in, when you begin to try to think of eternity, even 2,000 years since our Lord was here, it's absolutely nothing. When is it going to happen? I can't give you a date on the calendar, but I can challenge you that if you go and you look back at these passages that we've looked at and that we've already looked at in some detail when we looked at the Olivet Discourse, the truth is, anytime. Literally, it could happen tonight before we leave here. Now, if His coming could happen that quickly, what should you and I be doing? Well, can I just read a couple of passages in closing? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, first of all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. As a child of God, there's no reason that it has to slip up on us if we're ready all the time looking for Him as we've been told to do. Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day, we are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for the work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves." Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
one of my strength verses in the Bible. This just so many times. He says, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Amazing. We've seen right through all these things in the end times. We're right there with him, but he's the one that's always doing it. God's not going to call you and ask you to do anything for him, but what that he won't be there to accomplish it through you if you'll just make yourself available. Brethren, pray for us. Greet the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. These words tell us exactly what we should be doing while we're waiting and watching for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. Look just a few pages over in your Bible to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And notice what he says beginning in verse 11. He says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Of course, the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing to Titus, the young preacher, trying to encourage him, and how that he should be handling this waiting and watching for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I give you this final verse back into Revelation chapter 22. You know, as this book came to an end, we find that Jesus himself was the one that had said there in verse 7, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See, thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Verse 12 is recording the words of the Lord Jesus Christ again. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. 
I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bride and morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him that hear us say, Come. Let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifies these things saith, notice again, surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. The word Maranatha, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Folks, Jesus said he was coming quickly. We don't know the day, nor the time, nor the hour. But we've sure been given some wise instruction on what we should be doing while we're waiting and while we're watching. And I've said to you before, and I say this to you tonight, that surely, surely as we think of the second coming of Christ, it should do a couple of things for us. Now, I know I'm singing to the choir as they say tonight. Hopefully, all of you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The simple truth is, the thoughts of the second coming of Christ, if you don't have that certainty, if you don't know it for sure, then boy, it ought to grab a hold of you and say, boy, I need to be ready. There is nothing to stop it from happening. And once it happens, there will be no more chance, no more opportunity, no other way to ever deal with your sin again. So it ought to challenge you if you're an unbeliever to make sure. It ought to challenge you if you're a lukewarm Christian. Everything that we see here is how we ought to be living our godly lives. I know. I have to look at myself in the mirror every morning. I know. I know that so many times in the flesh, when we look at ourselves, we know that we're undeserving. We know that with absolute certainty. But I know more and more day by day, as we sang earlier, how worthy that Jesus is. How worthy that He is. This evening, you need to know that your life is in Him. And for the Christian, it ought to give us a desire that we can be more like Jesus every day that we live. And it ought to give us a zeal for winning the lost, realizing that everybody we come in contact with that doesn't know Jesus Christ, they're going to be there at that great white throne of judgment. And I don't care if they do get upset with you. I don't care if they do think you're some kind of a, a Bible thumper or some kind of a Jesus freak or whatever else that they want to come up with. The truth is, they have no other hope. I've used the illustration before, and I'm sure you've heard it, and I've heard others use it. You know, if it was your family and you saw them in a house that was on fire and burning down, you wouldn't even have to think. You wouldn't even have to give it a thought. 
but what you would go in there and you would grab them and you would get them out of there. Pull them away from the danger. And yet we're talking about eternity. Eternity. Forever and ever and ever and ever. None of us want people that we love to be upset with us. But there's something even more important here. The teaching of the second coming, it ought to give us that drive that we want to do everything. We do not want to stand before God one day and see those that we care about standing before the great white throne because we never had, can, can I just use an old country down to earth? We simply didn't have the guts to face them with it. The intestinal fortitude to stand up and look them in the eye and be honest with them. Folks, the second coming ought to do that to us, to each and every one of us this evening. And we're going to sing for our closing hymn this evening, one that I like and one that you hear this evening, each and every one of us. You know, the truth is we need to get our, our eyes off of self. We need to get our eyes off of the things and the circumstances in the world around us. We need to get our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to sing for our closing hymn this evening. It says, simply turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's what I want to encourage you this evening. We talk about his coming. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. He's the one. He'll meet your every need. And I trust and pray this evening. If you don't have that servant certainty, will you focus upon that before you focus upon anything else? Christian, don't let this stuff just go off. We don't need just a bunch of facts to sprout around and show people how smart we are on the book of Revelation and prophecy. It needs to be affecting our lives and the way that we live, that when we're out there, it's got an effect upon us that we're trying to win them to Christ because we believe that he's coming soon.